Thank you, Abby. And thank you, Katie. We ask you to do the announcements for volunteers because you are skilled at making people feel guilty. <laughs> Speaking of manipulation, wouldn't it be nice if we could believe everything that we heard? If only we could turn on the news and hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But what do we get? Spin, ideological agendas, alternative facts. If only we could turn to world leaders and hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But what do we get? It's not an invasion. It's a special military operation. If only we could count on social media to give us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But what do we get? Highly, highly filtered images of people's lives that make them look absolutely perfect all the time. Apologize for my pictures of Colorado last week. <laughs> if only we could watch commercials for various products and get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But what do we get? Guaranteed to whiten your teeth, bring back your hair, make you ripped in 30 days. If only we could trust politicians to give us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But what do we get? Well, I have so many examples to choose from, from both sides of the aisle, that I'm just going to bite my tongue on this one. If only we could believe everything that we hear. Last week, while I was on vacation in Colorado, um, spending time with my family, I had a very fascinating conversation with my brother-in-law who was telling me uh, about an acquaintance of his who works on something called a credibility marketing team. And it, this team is composed of about a dozen people, and their entire job is to make uh, a wealthy businessman um, sound more believable, who's trying to attract more investors. I didn't even know credibility marketing teams were a thing, but apparently it's a thriving industry in our country right now. Now, the goal of this team isn't to fact check or to make sure that what this wealthy businessman is saying is true. No. The entire goal of the team is simply to manipulate people into believing that what this guy is saying is true and credible so that he can make more money. So the credibility marketing team carefully edits his videos, crafts his presentations, monitors the algorithms on certain uh, social media sites where they're posting for him. And by doing so, they can actually track opinion shifting and upticks in this businessman's believability as they pull various strings behind the scenes to prop him up as a credible expert in his field. All the while, the, the guy who's working on this team, my brother-in-law's acquaintance, admits privately that this guy is not a man of integrity and is not credible on his own. My friends, we live in a world where the credibility gap is huge and the integrity quotient is small. Does your heart, like mine, long for it to be the other way around? If it does, our text of scripture today is going to show you that the longing in your heart is actually in tune with the heartbeat, the very heartbeat of God. Well, welcome to Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. 
And if you've been tracking with us the past few months, you know that we've been teaching verse by verse through the greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus some 2,000 years ago on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It was more of a hill, but I'm, I'm from Colorado. I'm a snob about mounts. Um, and we're in a section right now um, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is giving six sermon illustrations to illustrate what he means when he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And these sermon illustrations were shocking, absolutely was flabbergasting to the original audience that were listening to these, um, these words of Jesus. Well, why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were cons- largely considered the good guys. They were the squeaky clean moralists. They seemed to have it all together. They were the most pious. They were the most religious. They're the ones who obeyed God's law the best. See, the scribes and the Pharisees looked at the brokenness all around them and the human condition, murder, adultery, broken families, broken promises, and diagnosed the problem largely as behavioral. They taught you simply need to clean up, shape up, reform yourself, do more, try harder. And this is always what religion attempts to do, right? Here's the long list of rules. Now take it and obey everything. Work really, really hard at being really, really good by keeping all the rules all the time. And then God will be happy with you. Just go modify your behavior, and then you're in. That's religion in a nutshell. But as Jesus is giving his six sermon illustrations in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. It becomes really, really clear that Jesus has a totally different diagnosis on the human condition. Jesus is showing us that the problem is not out there in our behavior. It's not external. No, it's in here. It's internal. It's in our hearts. That's where the issue is. That's where the real problem is. And in his first three sermon illustrations, Jesus has taught us that murder flows from anger. Where? In our hearts. That adultery flows from lust. Where? In our hearts. That divorce flows from hardness. Where? In our hearts. So we can modify all our behavior all day long, all we want. But that is not enough to get us into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, the squeaky clean moralists, it's not enough. Unless our hearts are transformed by the inside out, we're never going to be truly right with God. Jesus looked at the scribes and Pharisees in the section on the Sermon on the Mount and said, guys, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're trying to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. You need, that's not going to work. You need an entirely new heart, a heart that only I can give you if you repent and come to me with all your brokenness and you follow me as your Lord and your Savior. You need a Savior. Well, today we come to Jesus' fourth sermon illustration. And this one is on the topic of oaths or vows. But before we dive into the text, I just want to pause and express my appreciation for Pastor Ryan sitting over there um, to allow me to enjoy my vacation. Um, He's taught the past two weeks. And 
those two weeks were anything but light and easy passages. Hey, Ryan, I'm going on vacation. Let's see here. What's next on the schedule? Oh, yeah, lust and adultery and divorce. Okay, yeah. Have fun with those. I'm out. But I so appreciate the delicate balance of both truth and grace that, that Ryan brought to the table on both of these messages. So if you haven't listened to them, please go back and catch up with the, on our podcast um, or YouTube channel. I'm so very thankful Ryan, for, for you, Ryan, and your ministry here with us. Um, he's a very gifted teacher of God's Word. As an aside, um, last year, when we were looking to fill uh, Ryan's position, we had hired a search firm um, to help us. And their first batch of candidates, um, Bill, you're grinning, um, <laughs> but they're, they're, he's with me in this. Um, their first batch of candidates that they sent us were just like, wah, wah, wah. you know, they're just like, ugh. <laughs> and so I pushed back on it with the search firm. I said, guys, we, we're looking for somebody who's really a good teacher. And our consultant pushed back on me and said, well, Mark, you don't want somebody that's better than you, or as good as you, is how he put it. You don't want somebody that's as good as you, as you at teaching because you're the lead pastor. I said, you're right. You know, you're right. Um, you're absolutely right. I want somebody that's better than me at teaching. <laughs> um, and I think we found that in Ryan. I actually did say exactly those words to our, our search search firm consultant. But, so thank you, Ryan, for skillfully leading us through the Word of God the past two weeks. Okay, let's dive into our text that Abby read for us earlier. And if you're taking notes, we're going to be dividing our thoughts into three buckets this morning. This is for you, Gus. I haven't preached with buckets in a while, but here we go. Back to the buckets. First bucket. The, I don't know why he likes the buckets, but he likes the buckets. <laughs> Got to give the people what they want. First of all, the common purpose of making oaths. Secondly, the cultural practice of making oaths in Jesus' day. And thirdly, the central point of Jesus' teaching on oaths. So if you're taking notes, you can write those three things down. Okay, verse 33. Let's jump in here and reread it this morning. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, this is Jesus talking, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, quoting the Old Testament in verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, the foot, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, though some of us have probably tried. Okay, what on earth is going on here? To understand this, let's, we're going to get to the historical, cultural um, background of all this, but before we do, I want us to kind of back up back up out of the text, and just approach this from an anthropo anthropological viewpoint, okay? Why on earth do human societies across the globe take oaths in the first place? This isn't, isn't just exclusive to first century Jewish culture. It isn't just exclusive to our culture. We make promises and contracts and vows. No, this, this is a common human experience, this oath-making thing. You know, we even learn it as kids, don't we? Cross my fingers, hope, what is it? Cross my fingers, cross my heart. That's what it is. Cross my fingers is the opposite. Cross, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I pinky promise. I, I, I'm, I swear, what I'm telling you is true. We learn this at an early age. We learn to do this. Why? Why do we instinctively swear oaths like this? Just as humans. This is cross-cultural. 
Well, it's because deep down, we know that people tend to be what? Liars, right? People tend not to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. People have selfish agendas. They work the angles to say whatever they need to say to promote their own self-interest, especially under pressure. They tell stories that paint themselves in the best possible light. They deceptively try to pull the wool over our eyes. They break promises. They hide truth by telling us only half the truth. They shift blame. They avoid accountability. They save face. Yeah, those people. Well, how do we know all this? Well, because if we're really honest about our own hearts, what do we see there? We see these same very things. How many of you have told a half-truth before? Okay, there's a few pious ones in here. Um, (laughs) I have. Um, We know deep down, we're pretty much the same. Our hearts are tempted to bend the truth, to make ourselves look better. And so swearing oaths is the common way that we attempt to assert our credibility in the face of doubt. When people begin to question what we're, if the veracity of what we're saying, is what you're telling me really true? Yes, 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 it, it is. I'm, I'm really being truthful here. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Scout's honor. What I'm telling is true. I'm going to keep my promise. So that's the common purpose of oaths. It's the way that we try to assert our credibility in the face of doubt, just from a human perspective. Okay, now let's get back to the text and and the the cultural background of what was going on here in the first century. So, bucket number two, the cultural practice of making oaths in Jesus' day. See, the original Jewish audience that was listening to the Sermon on the Mount had Old Testament laws which provided for them guidelines for truth-telling or making oaths and vows. You're likely familiar with the ninth commandment, which forbids giving false testimony against your neighbor. You're probably familiar with the the, the commandment that says, um, uh, do not take my name in vain. And we often think of that as just um, swearing or or saying, God, God, you know what? Um, That's not it. Taking God's name in vain is using it to make a promise by his name, and then doing something else. And so you've invoked his name to lend credibility to what you're saying. You invoked his name, you've brought him into the equation, and then if you do something different and that's not in line with his character, then that profanes the name of God. That's really what it means to take the name of God in vain. But there's some other Old Testament laws that give guidelines for truth-telling or or making oaths. Numbers 30, verse 2 says this If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Leviticus 19, 11 through 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. Again, that's, that's tied to do not take my name in vain. So, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So here's what's very clear from these laws. To invoke the name of God when you made an oath meant that you had to keep it. You're bound to it. Because now not only is your reputation on the line, so is whose? God's reputation. 
So, so the Pharisee would say, okay, if you, you, if you invoke God's name, if you bring God's name into it, sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. That is binding. If you break that, you are outside the community of faith. You're a sinner. You're an outcast. You're out of line with God's law. Um, but what if, what if we leave God's name out of the equation? Well, then you've probably got a little wiggle room. And apparently, these religious leaders went on to develop a whole codified system of different types of oaths, different things you could swear by, that, that little held a little hierarchy of, of, of value. If it was close to God, it, was, it lent some credibility, but you could probably still wiggle out of it if you didn't exactly invoke God's name. So if the temple or the altar in the temple or something that sort of talked about God's presence but wasn't quite there, you're, you're probably okay. You can wiggle out of that. And we see Jesus confronting this system that they had set up in our passage today. So why he, he um, confronts several of the things they would swear on, like swear on the temple, I swear on the earth, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by my own head or the hair on my head. And we see those four things listed in this passage. And the Pharisaical perspective was this. Lying is okay as long as you don't swear by God's name. Lying is okay as long as you don't swear by God's name. Don't bring God into it, and you can wiggle out of it. But Jesus is pointing out the fallacy in their logic here. Are you kidding me? Jesus is saying, what is wrong with you people? How delusional can you get? God is everywhere. He sees all. He knows all. You want to swear by heaven and then break your promise? Well, just think about it. What is heaven? It's the very throne of God. You want to swear by earth? Well, we'll just think about it. What is the earth? The earth is his footstool. You want to swear by Jerusalem? That's the city of God. Even your own head is under God's control is made in the image of God. What's the point in Jesus' rebuke? There's nothing that you can swear on that does not invoke the name of God in some form or fashion because God is over all and in all. Do you get the logic? And this isn't the only time Jesus confronts the Pharisees on this. Guys, you, you, you can't hide from the presence of God. Over in Matthew chapter 23, we see it there too, where he says a pretty extended passage on this very topic. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold in the temple is bound by that oath because that's closer to the, where the presence of God is in the temple. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in the temple. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. So you see the similar theme that he's confronting this codified system of oath-making where they've left themselves some loopholes to wiggle out of various promises. So while being very careful to technically keep the letter of the law by, invoke, by not invoking the name of God in oath, they developed an entire oath-keeping system for getting around the spirit 
of the law. Isn't this crazy? I swear by the temple that I'll pay you back on Friday. Friday comes and goes, hey, where's my money? Oh, you thought I was swearing by, by, by the gold part of the temple. No, 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 I was just swearing by the pavement stones. We walk on those. Sorry for the misunderstanding. Fingers crossed. And Jesus says, this is all silliness. <laughs> this is craziness. And it's totally missing the point of the law, which brings us to thought bucket number three this morning, the central point of Jesus' teaching about oaths. You know, when Jesus says in these verses, don't take an oath at all, beginning at the beginning of verse 34, is he making a new law that prohibits us from making promises or, or swearing oaths or making vows? I don't think so. Because what does God himself do? He makes covenants. He makes oaths. He makes promises. Jesus even answered under oath when he was on trial. The apostle Paul makes a vow to God in the book of Acts. So he doesn't seem like Jesus is setting up a new law saying you can never make a promise. No, that would be out of line with being an image bearer of God who's a promise-making God. So no, he's not setting up a new law or contradicting the Old Testament law. What is he doing? He's simply confronting, he's pitting himself against the pharisaical interpretation and application of these laws around truth-telling. Think about it. What was the pharisaical system of oaths doing? It was putting a religious stamp of approval on, the, on a practice that was ripe for abuse. It was creating a, a culture of untrustworthiness, untrustworthy manipulation and exploitation in which you could say one thing but mean something totally different. It created loopholes, fine print, where you could wiggle out of the contract, so to speak, where you could deceive, defraud, and still be okay with God and his law. And Jesus is saying, this is totally out of line with the heartbeat of God. It's coercive. It's manipulative. It's using other people for your own ends. It's treating other people like garbage, not as people created in the image and likeness of God to be cherished and upheld. It's desecrating the image of God in the other. Jesus is saying here, the problem is not with making oaths. The problem is a heart that's, that's corrupted with deceptive self-interest. All these levels of oaths, all these escape clauses you've built into the system, it's symptomatic of a deeper problem that runs all the way to your heart. It's not about your external behavior. It's about your heart. Here's the point. You need a new heart of integrity. That's without duplicity and deception where your yes means yes and where your no means no. How do we get this kind of heart, Jesus? How do we get this kind of heart? Because deep down, we all know that we have this tendency to be deceitful. We know that our hearts are desperately wicked, as it says in the Old Testament. We all, I don't care how pious you are, we all have a credibility gap. I, as your pastor, do. How do we get a new heart, Jesus? We need help. Here's how Jesus answers that question. I have not come to abolish the law, but to 
fulfill it. I'm the one who's righteous. I'm the one who has righteousness and can dispense it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only one who can give you a new heart. I'm the only one who can provide the righteousness that God the Father requires. But you need to acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. That you are more sinful and broken than you thought possible. So that I can show you that you are simultaneously more loved and accepted in me than you ever dared to hope. This, my friends, is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. This is how Jesus begins to change us from the inside out, rescuing us from pride, from fear, from selfishness, and giving us new hearts of integrity that accurately reflect the heart of God. New hearts of integrity that are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. You know, when you stop to think about it, why do we lie? Why do we misrepresent the truth? Why do we break our promises? Well, it comes down to basically three things. Say these with me. Pride, fear, selfishness. Pride, fear, selfishness. First of all, pride. Why do we exaggerate to make ourselves look better? Pride. Why do we pad our resumes? Pride. Why do we use filters on social media to paint ourselves in the best possible light and only post the stuff that makes us look really good? Pride. But what does the gospel do? The gospel melts our pride. How? It tells us that we're more sinful than we thought we were, that we need a savior. We can't do it on our own. We can't prop ourselves up with self-righteousness. It's not enough. The gospel melts our pride. Secondly, let's move to fear, okay? Why do we tell little white lies? Fear. Why do we bend the truth? Fear. Because we're often so fearful that if people knew the whole truth about us, if people knew that we don't really have it all together, that we make mistakes, that we aren't perfect, you know, they, they just might think a little bit less of us. And we're afraid of that. Why? Because then they might reject us. They might not love us. They might not approve of us. And so we put on the mask and hide behind these polite, socially acceptable mistruths or untruths. But what does the gospel of Jesus do with our fear? It tells us that we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. We don't need the approval of others. Why? Because we're already approved of by God. Because when he looks at us in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He smiles on us as his sons and daughters. So we can take off the mask. We can be authentically real. We can allow others to know that we aren't perfect, that we struggle with sin just like everybody else. The gospel melts our fear because God looks at us and smiles. Thirdly, selfishness. Pride, fear, selfishness. Why do we leave ourselves loopholes in contracts? Why do you say, oh, sorry, I'd really like to help, but I'm really busy that day. You're not busy that day. 
Why do we cheat on our taxes? Why do we manipulate others to get them to do what we want? Settlers of Catan is okay to do that. I just want to mention that, create that loophole for myself. It's a game. Um, now it boils down to selfishness, doesn't it? It boils down to selfishness. And selfishness always springs from the, the heart of an orphan. What do I mean by that? What does an orphan have to do? An orphan has to fend for themselves or, or nobody else is going to, right? Gonna, they have to look out for number one. They have to manipulate things to make sure that they're taken care of because no one else is taking care of them. They don't have a loving parent that is watching out for their best interests. But what does the gospel do? As it sinks into our heart, it also melts our selfishness. How? By reminding us that we are who? We're God's children. We're sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Let that sink in. You have an eternal inheritance that far outweighs anything in this world. God is watching out for you. He's with you. You are his. If you're a parent, think of the love that you have for your children and the, the innate desire to provide for and to care for those kids. Now multiply that by a billion to the 10th power and add another trillion to the 17th power. You're not even getting close to the way God feels about you. You are not an orphan. You're a child of the king. Let that sink in. We have an eternal inheritance. We don't have to get ahead. We don't need to play the game. We don't have to win. We don't have to manipulate the situation so it turns out in our advantage. Why? The riches of eternity await us. The more we, we reflect on how much undeserved favor we've been given by God and Jesus, the more our selfishness melts away. His love transforms us. We begin to be conduits of that same self-sacrificial love and grace as we extend it to others around us. We begin to look more and more like Jesus, who said what when he was here? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The gospel slowly melts our pride. It slowly melts our fear. It slowly melts our selfishness. The gospel is not just what we need to come to faith. It's what we need regular reminders of to also grow in our walk with Jesus. That's why with every message I preach, I pause to ask myself somewhere in the sermon prep process, Mark, why did Jesus have to die for this sermon? I actually ask that. Why did Jesus have to die for this sermon? Why do I do that? Because I don't want to point you to behavioral modification. I don't want to make you more religious to where you do more, try harder, modify your behavior to try to please God. That's not where it's at. My friends, you don't need to modify your behavior. You need a new heart, and that new heart can only come through Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, saying, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. That is the answer to our duplicitous hearts. 
I want to point you towards Jesus, my friends, because he's our only hope. He's our only hope of a new heart. Out of the overflow of the, the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So Jesus is our only hope of having our yes mean, yeses mean yes, and our noes mean no. As the worship team makes their way back to stage, Jeremy and I were talking about how to end the service uh, this morning. What, what songs should we choose to wrap, wrap things up? And we settled on an old hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. Now that might seem like a non sequitur. Why are we talking about God's faithfulness? Well, here, here it is. God always keeps his promises, doesn't he? God is a truth-telling, oath-keeping, promise-keeping God. You know, he's never promised you a good life or that your life would not be have troubles. No, in fact, he promises the opposite. In this world, you will have troubles, but Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. In other words, I'm going to be with you in it, and I'm going to rescue you from it. Maybe not necessarily from it, but I'm going to come and renew all things so it was back to the way it was meant to be. Those are the promises we can take to the bank. God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, truth-telling God. And I love this quote. I got this from Ryan by a guy named Lewis Smeads. He says this, we are never more like God than when we keep our promises. We are ne- Say that with me. We are never more like God than when we keep our promises. So let's remind ourselves as we sing these lyrics of the God who is renewing our hearts from the inside out through his son, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we come to you as needy people. We come to you knowing that we have duplicitous hearts, hearts that are prone to bend the truth. We know we need a Savior. We know we need Jesus continuing to work on us so that we reflect you, our promise-keeping, oath-keeping, truth-telling, covenant-making God. So we invite you here to change our hearts. And as we sing these lyrics, Lord, remind us of your faithfulness to us. Amen.